Welcome to Reinventing Education, a podcast for people who are interested in reinventing what education is. I'm Rob McLeod and joined, as always, by Brennan O'Leary. Hey, Rob. How are you, Brennan? I'm fine. How are you? Pretty stellar. I'm interested to get into our chat today. We're going to talk about school cultures, classroom ethos, as well as a little bit about what rooms look like in the security-minded school. But before we get into our nuts and bolts, I'm doing well. We had uh, an integral meetup yesterday in Brussels using the Mind Openers app, which uh, we discussed a few weeks back, the work of Bernard Possert. And essentially, the idea behind that is there are like 40 different ways, thought forms, ways of thinking about topics. Usually, at least in my case, I use about three of these 40 by default. So we got together, got paired up with a partner, a little group of three, and talked about a topic, but using these different frameworks for thinking about it. And it just seems like, why am I not doing this all the time to help myself take larger perspectives on things? So really good afternoon yesterday. Sounds cool. Did you get any third degree burns this week? I did. Uh, I learned a really important lesson 38 years into my life, and that is do not reach over a kettle as it's reaching its peak boil directly through the steam and manage to get third degree burns on my wrist. But thankfully, they're healing rather quickly. But it's grotesque looking. Who said old dogs can't learn new tricks? I'm doing fine, Rob, to answer your question. Making some rock and roll music, as always. Hanging out with my kids, etc., etc. In terms of schooling, it's a busy time. It's a busy time. Stepping up more into this curriculum coordinator role. Spoke a little uh, a few weeks ago about how I was looking at the daunting prospect of trying to get my head around the hundreds of standards and practices that schools run on. To make it more interesting, our school has three sets, as I think I mentioned. Trying to align them, trying to work out, you know, how does a school really operate? And our school does a lot of awesome stuff. And we've got to, as always, make action plans to keep improving the school. This is a really good framework to do that. Shall we launch into a little section we've come to know and love as nutshells? Certainly not. First, I want to check out if you have any reverse sponsorships for this week. The only reverse sponsorship I'd throw out is to the long-deceased Paolo Freire for his work Pedagogy of the Oppressed, as I've spoken about many times. I love it. I love the concept. And today, once again, as in this episode, we'll talk about that banking method of education where the teacher drops learning into a youngster's head and then pulls it out later. Oh, this is essentially a concept that was coined by Friuri, and he wasn't so keen on it. He really suggested that we should go the other way. And education is not about filling a vase. It's about lighting a fire. And so a big shout out to my man, Paolo, beyond the grave. Keep doing that stellar work. My, my shout out this week goes to someone who's not in a grave, very much out and about on the planet Earth these days and doing great work. I wanted to give a shout out to Brad Kirshner, who is someone I actually had just a personal private chat with like a little over a year ago. Um, I'm shocked that I that we haven't brought him onto the show to discuss things. Brad is an educator in America, I believe a principal in Boston, but working in one of the Quaker Friendship Schools now. And I just want to give a shout out to his YouTube channel because he does a lot of talks and he's starting to put those up onto his YouTube channel. And there is one that he released about a month ago called Making Sense and Finding Peace in a Time of Transformation. And if you're at all interested in what we're talking about on this show, uh, Brad is certainly 
certainly cut from a very similar cloth. He is working in ideas from integral theory. He's working in ideas from uh, metamodernism. He's combining many different strands of thinking, and I just find his talks are really engaging. You can tell that he's not just reading through a script. It's a very kind of alive in the moment sort of thing, and he's just somehow managing to just slay me with so much dense information, but presented in an accessible uh, and easier way. So Brad Kirshner, K-E-R-S-H-N-E-R, Dr. Brad Kirshner, uh, find him on YouTube and check out his talk, Making Sense and Finding Peace in a Time of Transformation. That's my shout out for this week. Yes! Love it. All right, time for these nuts, Shells. I'm excited, right, about that. Not that I don't think the anti-establishment sponsorship isn't great, but I'm so excited about this because we're getting to condense information into a tiny bullet. And this right now is a bullet of information. I think I can do it in a minute without any detours. So what are the three aims of education? Well, first of all, all of us want the best for students, but Rob, what does that mean? Well, school has three aims, three main goals, the cultivation of citizens, employment preparation, and the development of the individual. But how they go about this is shaped by the value system they operate from. So what are the values that influence what education looks like? There are schools that seek security. There are those that seek opportunity. There are those those that seek inclusion, and then there is a fourth kind that seeks the integration of those previous three. And if we want to look at those different types of values, we would look at different aspects of the school or the education. What are the eight aspects of education? Correct. The individual's belief and reactions, the group's community and culture, the activities and resources, and the systems and physical environments. And we really need to consider all eight of these, or the one that we miss is probably the place where problems will arise. Just to wrap that up, the Reinventing Education mission, we're essentially saying that by being conscious of the aims, values, and aspects, and being... And by being open to using the one that, that best fits our context, we can build schools or places of education that are the best fit for the very diverse range of students that we have. In essence, we're not doing anything new. We're just balancing what we already have. The end. Roll the credits. Roll credits. This episode's done. Max 7. Yeah. Let's get back to our conversation about the security school. So we've taken the last handful of episodes to go in-depth about one of those values you highlight, the first value, security. And historically, in the history of education, this is the value where mainstream whole countrywide education emerged from. So basically back from that Prussian model in the late 1700s, and arguably still in many ways up till this day, there is an approach to school that is modeled around the security value, or if you're into integral theory or spot dynamics, the amber or the blue value. And this is just kind of like, we'll often use the word a traditional school, sort of an old school version of school. And Bren and I, we've been looking at some of the different eight aspects of school, looking at how the security value approaches those eight aspects. Today, we are going to look at the classroom culture and the classroom ethos, and as well to look a little bit more at the classroom layout and the design of the learning spaces in a security or traditional type school. So, Brendan? Oh, I was going to say is that at this kind of value, we would hear terms such as trust, common sense, duty, self-discipline, lineage, and tradition. We'd hear those terms a lot. And what we would not expect to hear quite as much is the idea of being transparent, critical thinking, empirical 
Not that those don't appear, but we would be more likely to hear that first set of terms. But I think all of those words you just used there, those would all be used, but they might just have different meanings in this place. It might have a different definition than the other values would have. You and I, just before we started, started this episode, we were looking up for synonyms of balance, and we realized that in a list of 12 synonyms for balance, there were some that matched you know, the security value. There were some that matched this opportunity value. There are some that matched the inclusion value. So I think all of those things are still there. One thing I'd like to just touch back on before we launch into the idea of the ethos or the class culture was this conception of learning. I mentioned Friuri a little bit earlier, and I think it, it is vital to understand that this banking model, which is knowledge-based and based on remembering and basic skills. This is seen in the traditional school as the way to teach and the best or even only way to teach, the correct way to teach. And so to, to, when we visited the imaginary school, to be on board with that mindset, you kind of have to put yourself in the position of like, actually, this is the way to teach. This is what teaching and learning should look like. Now, of course, we're going to critique that stance in the episode, but we're coming from the point of view that the traditional school, when it sees that banking method happening, it's not critical of that method. It sees that method as being the correct route to a successful education. And maybe let's just take one more minute to dive deeper into that. Let's try to see from their perspective, why would we see that as being the best approach? And the first thing that comes to my mind is just the security that that ensures. We have a set body of information that needs to be known. And if we look at this historically, this value came out first on the scene kind of in the 1700s. And arguably, you could say that knowledge and the access to knowledge in particular was rather scarce at that time. So there was this idea that like, you know, you kind of have to like use a lot of oral tradition and a lot of reinforcement to ensure that this body of knowledge is spread amongst a populace, amongst a population and is shared. And, you know, a pretty effective way to do that is this banking method of here's the information, put it in your head, and I'm going to check that you heard and internalized what I said. And that reinforces that security value of like, we're all on the same page here, right? You know the info I need you to know? Good. That's what we're looking for. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that you as a student would need to apply this knowledge critically was such an alien concept a couple of hundred years ago if you were schooled at nine, ten years old. And it actually, biologically, and we've had this discussion a few times, it f seems to fall in line with the idea. I remember seeing a show where Richard Dawkins was talking about um, the idea of religion. He's obviously, he was talking in this show about it being a form of indoctrination. And to teach religion to a seven or eight-year-old, they are biologically set up to just believe it and take it all in. Because that is the age where the kids who evolutionarily survived were the ones who listened when the parents said, don't go near that cliff, don't go into that forest. They listened, they took it on face value and they did it and they survived and they had kids generation after generation. Whereas the dude that, that was out there chasing the saber-toothed tiger, he didn't have many kids. And so this, the argument was that actually at this age, the primary age, that kind of method of rote learning and just listening to what the experts
it says and taking it on board biologically makes a lot of sense. Making the case for that security school will heavily make the case against it many times in the next few episodes. But I, I am glad we started here because we said this at the start of this episode. The aim, the purpose, or our mission here on reinventing education is not to throw out everything that has happened in education, start from scratch, and reinvent the wheel. What you and I are trying to do is to take all of the pieces of what's already been done in education, lay it out on the table, and say, hey, with the parts we already have, could we make something that's way better than what we already have? Now, of course, you and I are open to all kinds of new ideas, but I think it's a little bit like dis dishonoring of our forefathers to just like completely throw everything out. So yes, Bren and I will be incredibly critical about the security value. And there are, you know, a million other things we will disagree with about it. And there are many bathwaters we will want to discard here, but nobody is wrong 100% of the time. It's one of my favorite Ken Wilber quotes. It's like, everybody's got something right on some level. And, you know, it might not have been by design. I'm sure that in Prussia, they weren't discussing evolutionary models of, of a pedagogy and then deciding on this. But it's like, hey, if that works, and if that actually matches with their biology, maybe that's not something we want to discard, but maybe we want to reinvent it, remix it, and bring it forth in a new way. So I think let's shift now to talking about the class culture, and let's use this analysis to see what do we want to keep and what do we want to discard from the classroom culture, the ethos of what we see in a room of students in a security or a traditional school. So to begin, I mean, just going back to what we said, this class culture meant and what we saw when we visited the school, we're essentially talking here about those strong, trusting bonds between students. We're essentially saying in its best form, we see the students in a traditional security-minded school as being part of a uh, comradeship that students are supporting each other, not in a collaborative work sense, but in the sense of they are there for each other. We're all in this together. So at its best, there's this sense of family and unconditional acceptance. And there's this shared high levels of trust between us. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about the staff and it looks very, very similar. What we saw in the staff a few episodes ago. Yeah, and the thing that connects us is the idea that we're all following the same rules. So we are a group, not due to maybe even our backgrounds or religious groups or political leanings or any kind of bloodlines or anything like that. No, you are part of the group if you choose to follow the same rules. And we have these kind of shared agreements between us, so you are in the group. And I have to be honest, in the schools I've seen in the modern day that still represent at least this part of the security value in their class ethos, it does seem like a really just welcoming family feel. And even, you know, the quote-unquote fringe folks who maybe, you know, aren't quite in the norm or, you know, they'd be on the outside of the bell curve one way or the other in terms of personality or social skills or even intelligence for that matter, they are fully accepted. And there's this kind of idea of like, you know, if there starts to be maybe a bit more of those social hierarchies emerging and and cliques or things like that, I've seen the teachers and I, I you know, this is a this is a baby I want to keep here. The teachers really step in and basically say like, no, we're on a team. Like you don't get to ostracize. You don't get to push somebody out of here. 
we are together in a team. And I have to be honest, it's been actually really touching to see that. Yeah, I think that this is one of the babies that we hear a lot in 2019 that maybe we've lost some of this. I'm not sure how much I quite agree with it. I'm an optimist and I see it a lot in every school I've worked in that I see this comradeship between students at its best. But of the three models that we're looking at, the security, the opportunity and the inclusion, there is a strong case that this bond between students is the strongest in this security value. And if we can keep that alongside any anything else that works from the other value systems, I think that's something to hold on to. Yeah, and when we're missing that, when we don't bring this forward with us into, say, the opportunity value or into the inclusion value, what we see is this lowering of that unconditional acceptance and that sense of family, and it tends to lead towards exclusion, cliques, and, you know, little separate subgroups that are kind of battling within the class. And, you know, I have to admit, though, like, this is where the bathwater comes in. And, you know, my tendency when I'm dealing with an actual student or two students, let's say, who aren't getting along or one sort of excluding another or, you know, taking steps towards what you might call bullying, my tendency is to towards like, hey, you, you guys don't have to like each other, but you can't do this. Whereas what I would say is I've seen in the security value, they wouldn't say that first part. They wouldn't say that you, you don't have to like each other. They would actually reinforce like, no, you actually need to get along. You have to find a way to make this work. And I think there is some benefit to that. But I think the problem starts to kick in when like, that's just not the way things are. Is that, like, are those semantics though? You think it's semantics where they kind of mean, ah, we know deep down you don't really need to get along, but we're going to say you need to get along because that's just how we frame or talk about comradeship. Yeah, there's probably a bit of a difference in semantics here, but what I what I see in the bathwater here is a bit of the false assumption that you can have true group harmony or homogeny because where this starts to fall apart is when things do get dire. And I think I brought up this example before a few weeks ago, but to me, this is the most telling real life example of it. And I knew somebody um, who is running a support center for students who just couldn't fit the school model. So for whatever reason, being in school is not serving you. You still need your education, but school is not the place to be doing it. And this place had set up just like a phenomenal program. Like, in fact, forget like what you might call quote unquote troubled youth. It's like, I would just want kids to be going to this place. Like this seems so much better than school in the first place. But nonetheless, they had this incredible facility. They were receiving government support and all this. And, but they weren't getting any students. They weren't getting any kids showing up. And it was quite a baffling problem because you think, oh, certainly there'd be people who need these services. So they had then reached out to some of these schools and arguably these schools in 2018 2019 were still operating very much in this security value and they're saying oh we don't have students like that we don't have students who are having problems socially in school we don't have students who are you know unable to do what we're asking that we don't have students who aren't fitting our image of what a kid is and these people like genuinely curious like oh wow then you've got something figured out can we spend a a few days at your school to see this and then you know almost like a horror movie you you're presented with this sort of like image of like oh we don't have problems like that here 
But then as soon as you start sticking around and poking your nose and doing a bit of research, it's like, oh, those kids do exist here, but we don't acknowledge the challenges and we pretend they're fitting the model and we pretend like we are handling them properly. And then when things do get dire enough, we just send them to another school. We make them relocate and we don't actually acknowledge the true problems that are going on here. And if we were to send one of our students to your really cool progressive place, it would kind of have to be us saying that we don't know best and we didn't know how to handle them and we couldn't fulfill our duties so we don't want to send them to you. We'd actually rather force this kid to move to another part of the country than have them get help just around the corner from somebody other than us. Now, I'm kind of jumping to the school level there, but I think that's just a magnification of what you'd see in the classroom level. The classroom level being the teacher kind of feeling it's their duty to create this secure sense of team, the secure sense of bond between the individuals in the class. And when something doesn't work, you either have to skillfully deal with it or what seems to happen more often, which is the bathwater here, you just ignore it. And you kind of create an alternate narrative about what's going on. This is going to keep coming back as we talk about the security value because it seems to be the main strategy for dealing with issues is to pretend they're not there. And so the greatest kind of punishment for you if you were a member of this class community or even staff community would be to be ostracized. And to avoid that, you would ignore problems and you would be unwilling to point out things that need to change or that would benefit change change and to question abusive authority. Now there is an image of the of the troubled the troubled security or traditionally minded kind of student going to the maternal figure or even a paternal but sitting with grandmother or somebody and talking through their troubles. I think that's very much a, a rarity possibly. I think it's a it's a beautiful image. It's something like a, an ideal or a vision or an archetype something that you know you, you kind of wish you had but in reality I, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that people may just not speak up about these things. And so there's clearly a shadow or the bathwater in the entire system and how it shows itself within the class is that is going to be the same as the way it shows itself throughout society. The other bathwater I would kind of say is that, and we said this again with staff, individual talents that fall outside what may be seen as beneficial for the group would not be pursued inside this establishment. So it may be that you are really, really into a particular thing, you would go and do that somewhere else. It's not that you're going to have that nurtured and brought online here, even if it could bring so much to the community. Now, as we get further down the line, more and more into the progressive style school, the inclusion school, this would be almost the opposite, where all of your talents would be aimed to be nurtured. And so clearly there are individuals within this class who have talents and skills that we would benefit to nurture for the entire group. I think I've said this about 20 times already, but at one point in the 1950s, a school teacher in Liverpool had two of the Beatles in their class. Might have been good at that point to double down on some music instruction. Who knows, maybe they've done even better than Sergeant Pepper. 
Moving on, let's take a look at the learning spaces or what would traditionally be called a classroom. Why would you go ahead and call them learning spaces with newfangled vocabulary? It's not a place where learning happens. It's a classroom. It's a place where the class happens. In a room. So what, what do we mean by that? And what are some of the things we would see in that traditional classroom that we talked about those many episodes ago? So if we look at some of the resources, which is one of our aspects, and how the invisible environment, another one of our aspects, play out in the classroom, you're going to see desks, orderly desks in rows, most likely. You're definitely going to see some kind of a board, chalkboard, or perhaps a smart board in the modern day, but it's mostly being controlled by the teacher who's at front. So this is that sage on the stage model, as uh, we sometimes refer to it in education. You've got the expert up there doing the teaching. On the walls, this is an interesting one because I've seen both extremes. You can either have walls that are fairly full or just rather sparse. Rather sparse in terms of the fact that whatever's happening in a class kind of comes out and then leaves at the end of the class. It doesn't stick around or linger in the room. But if you do find a lot of things on the walls, it probably pertains to like more about the culture than it does about the actual learning. So perhaps, you know, if the main religion of the school is Christian, you might see the Ten Commandments on the wall, for example. You might see the flag of the country, you know, more historically. You might see a picture of the monarch in your classroom or a local army general. Even, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s in Canada, we had a picture of the queen in most of our classrooms for a while. As you should. Um, as you should, as a as one of the countries governed by the Queen. So I love I love all their songs. <laughs> it's a strange choice. But uh... And I think the hidden thing that's going on here is you're you're being reminded in a very subtle way that authority is always there and perhaps always maybe having a bit of an eye on you. You might also see a school motto, although it might not be in the classroom, but it most likely appears in the school lobby perhaps. Now if you are to find stuff on the walls that have to do with what's going on in the lessons, you're probably going to see the alphabet written out. You might see math facts to memorize, so you might see the timetables written out or some addition or subtraction facts. And the idea is that, that this is reinforcing that repetition of just needing to know these things in the drop of a hat. You don't have to understand how a mathematical algorithm works. You just need to know 8 times 8 is 64. Shut your mouth and say no more. There might be formulas on the walls in the upper grades. And anything that is up there for teaching is just the reinforcing of some kind of memory memory aid. And just the idea that you need to see this stuff over and over again until it becomes second nature to just have it in your mind. Now, if you are to see actual student contributions, you're probably going to see one of two things. One is you'll see every student's copy of a recent assignment on the wall, or you might just see the most exemplary pieces of work by a few students occasionally displayed. And finally, if you look around on the walls in this room, rules will have some kind of a place, but what those look like can be very different. The traditional or security value doesn't always make rules explicit. Now, they might in terms of something like the Ten Commandments or a list of things we don't do, but it's not really until the next value you see explicit rules. You might just see more like general sayings about behavior or sort of like um, common aphorisms or whatnot about how we behave, but maybe not explicit rules. So, Brennan, in terms of the things we might see here, 
what are some of the babies? What do we want to keep in education moving forward, depending on our context? I think one of the big things to, to think about with learning spaces is that the, the medium is the message almost. Like you say, authority is always watching, but in terms of everything inside the room, the way it is set up, the furniture itself and the organization sets a very clear message about what type of learning will be happening here. And this kind of desks in rows where the room may only really have a few resources that are directly linked to learning such as textbooks and writing materials. They may be the only things in the room outside of the desks. That works to reinforce this kind of lecture style pedagogy that, that we see in the security system where students will work individually and they'll present back information that's been given to them. But this kind of learning environment might also, the argument against it is that it doesn't allow for any kind of interaction with students and in many ways it puts that convenience of the teacher over the needs of the students. Now one of the kind of babies that we might see though in this model is there are times even in 2019 when the level of focus that an individual might need or the concentration level benefits from having an individual desk that is facing away from all the other students and so that you're not directly face to face with anyone else in the room and you really can just get on with that kind of quiet work. It can also be used as a behavior management tool so the way you set up your classroom in a inquiry-based or progressive inclusion school will give a very different message to the one what you set up in a mainstream opportunity school. And in a mainstream opportunity school, the students may be facing each other. Now in this one, they're all facing the teacher. It reinforces that message. And if, if there are issues with behavior, having all the students facing the authority in the room to clearly say, hey, if we're gonna get some good learning done, I'm gonna need you all on board with me, the teacher, the authority, because if not, nothing of any importance in terms of your learning is happening. And so it's kind of like, hey, you might want to move back from that very progressive open style classroom towards these, this more traditional method. If you want to have a higher level of student engagement in this very difficult classroom scenario where the students are not adhering to the rules of the school. So there's, there's a couple of places. And then the obvious one also is we still do tests. There's still a place for written tests in 2019. Arguments for and against it abound, but if you are going to do a test, having you sat at an individual space makes a lot of sense too. So there are babies that we might want to keep hold of in this kind of scenario. Yeah, and one of them that I would talk about in terms of the environment, if we look at the walls, the things that go on the wall in a security school are very specific, very deliberate, and probably unchanging to some degree. And I think there's two benefits, possible benefits for students for that. One, the security rooms that I walk into are not overly stimulating environments typically. Now, I think one thing you begin to see in the opportunity value will be teachers who think that like their walls need to be hyper intense with information, with student work, with colors, with all this sort of stuff. And there's actually been a lot of research that shows this is not beneficial for students because it's too stimulating and doesn't allow them to focus. And it becomes more of a distraction and a hindrance to have this very complicated, you know, set of walls full of information that the kids need to be taking in to help them with their learning. So sometimes, you know, the less is more like, you know, the less 
<laughs> fancy classroom actually serves the student's nervous system a little bit better. Now, the other side is when you do actually have something on the walls, one of the babies here is, yeah, you kind of want something maybe from the first day of school through to the end that is really important and that highlights what matters. Now, the question would be whether or not the picture of the monarch or the other things we're talking about you'd see on the wall, are those the things you want to value and emphasize? But it, it is a way that you can reinforce what really matters. And then the stuff that does go up or comes down throughout the year, it should be deliberately there for a reason. Now, perhaps I'm giving some security-minded schools too much credit here. Maybe there isn't that same level of, of, of intention going into it. But I think that's one thing to consider moving forward. Are you just throwing stuff up on the walls because you feel you're supposed to or because like other teachers are doing it? So you've got to like make a few displays, but it doesn't really serve a purpose. I guess that's the baby here. What you put on the wall, what's the actual purpose? What is it attempting to reinforce or get across? So those are babies. I I don't know. Do we even have to go into the bathwater on this? Like I feel in 2019. I mean, it's worth making it explicit. Yeah. In 2019, I feel like you're hardly going to find somebody who will make a hard case that this is the best way to approach learning. Um, first of all, this classroom setup essentially is really just serving the needs of the teacher and the needs of the teacher to have order and the needs of the teacher to have that order so they can carry out their duty to do their lesson. Very little of this is really serving the students' well-being, whether that's socially, arguably even cognitively in terms of like how they can engage with this information to make it meaningful or even just to memorize it you know what i mean like this sort of like desk layout isn't necessarily in service of that um how about bathwater when it comes to rote learning and the reinforcement stuff i mean there's a place for rote learning there's a place for reinforcement the idea of you know bloom's taxonomy which is about higher order thinking skills essentially says you remember information then you understand it and then you apply it to different situations analyze it and then you synthesize it with with a whole bunch of other stuff to create new things. Now, if you're looking at the idea of rote learning, you're right down there at the bottom level. You don't have to even understand what this means if you can remember it and give it back. So that's clearly the case against rote learning. In terms of this idea of just sitting in desks and looking at a teacher who has essentially spoken for a very long time and then given you the same work to do as the person next to you, you're not interacting with them in any sense. It also removes any sense of your individuality to bring your own own opinion or your own background knowledge to this. You don't need anything. You're a blank slate when you walk in the room. I've given you the information. Give it back to me. If you've got more, don't need it, Mr. Smarty Pants. If you've got a different opinion, keep it to yourself for now. And sure, as you get older, there may be a place for essays to explore some of these ideas, but that's not happening in the kind of classrooms we're talking about. So essentially removing all chances for collaborative work and all of the, you know, all of the evidence that suggests that peer feedback and peer reflection is where the greatest learning is done and I just read I just had to present to some some parents in my school with the idea that peer reinforcement and peer assessment is one of the strongest ways to learn and there's a meta study of 200 studies I'll throw the link in in um, if I remember but essentially we want to motivate our students and support them by getting them to work together in a network that is still led by a teacher expert and is still reinforced and as you talk about in the readers writer's workshop model, your one-to-one -one conferring is really, really helpful. None of that is available in this traditional model. Students are very passive here. They are not active. The learning is happening supposedly passively. Sit here, listen. My duty as a teacher is to present this information. Your duty is to put it into your head like this bank
banking method we've discussed. And later on, when I come around and try to withdraw that information from your head, it's your duty to be able to say it back on the test. And it's an extreme you hit on this in terms of the uh, the levels of comprehension of that. I have heard teachers within the security mindset genuinely actually explicitly say, the students don't even need to understand this. They just need to remember these words. They just need to remember these dates. That's all I'm asking from them. And it's fascinating to me that then you can build this approach to teaching. You can build an approach to a classroom that actually allows for that, which basically says, no, listen to what I'm saying. Say it back. You don't even necessarily need to know what you're saying, but just say it back. That's what I need. And it sends chills up my spine to think of the like terrifying implications of how that could look when you map this out over time. But that is definitely one of the bathwaters we want to leave behind as we reinvent education. Yeah. And there's a sliding scale, of course, and this discussion has nuance in it. But yeah, at its more extreme, it's like you don't even have to learn anything in it or any sense other than learn that information. And this comes from a from a time when information was scarce, as we said at the beginning of the show. There's cases for it, but it's 2019 and you won't hear any strong cases for it. The last kind of bathwater I'd throw in about the rules in terms of the behavior is like sometimes having those rules explicit, even having them agreed by the students is key to being able to have that discussion and get those students on board rather than the punitive of we're not going to quite tell you the rules, but you by jolly jimmy jim jims, you'll know when you've broken them and you won't break them again. It's almost like burning your hand on a kettle. You got to learn the hard way. You'd think it'd be common sense. You should just know better. Yeah. And I think this is one of those things that reinforces the security of the authority because if they explicitly state the rules, they don't have so much gray area. And there might be a situation where, you know, if you, you brought a lawyer in here, you could argue that that's not so much the case. But if it's left more vague and more general, it's just simply in the hands of the teacher or the administrator to kind of dish out a punishment when something's been out of line. And we don't have to say specifically exactly by the letter of the law or this article that, yeah, you broke this school or rule or didn't. When it's left more vague, it can kind of be just left to a more general heuristic of common sense, like, no, you don't do that and you're in trouble for this. Which is awesome if you can trust authority, but not so good if you've got your doubts. Exactly. So is that is anything else to add to that, Rob? I think we dug deep there. We've touched now on the kind of classroom culture or social culture within students. We've talked about what you would see in terms of resources in the physical environment when you step into one of these security classrooms. So next up, Brendan, what will we look at? Next up, we'll begin to start looking at the instruction itself of what a lesson might look like. And this is a biggie. This is where we really get to see all the things we've talked about in action. So I'm looking forward to that. So we're woo! It's 2020. Woo! Um. So I hope you had a great New Year with your 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 family in Kincardine, in 123 Kincardine Street, Kincardine. To all of you, you might not notice. Brandon wasn't saying that to me. He was saying that to all of you listeners. To all of you, yeah. And a and a Jerry New Year. Brennan, thanks. Rob, thanks. We hope this episode has been interesting. If you want to connect, we're on Twitter. We're kind of building a community there. Feel free to pass this episode on to others who give a damn about what's going on in education. From Brendan and myself, attention is a valuable thing these days. Thanks for having some of yours on what we're saying. To meet those three aims. Hold on. Now. Sorry. When you, when you, said, when you said, should you introduce them? Probably should have said no. <laughs> 
I basically have a script that I want to read. <laughs> and all I want you to do is to say the titles <laughs> when you when you think the titles are going to come up. Okay. Like to interject, like interrupt. To interject just and say, James, yeah, just read okay. titles, man. Is that right? Yeah, let's leave all this in. John Lennon, yeah. 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 John Lennon, yeah.